Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 58, the book of Matthew, chapter 16, the second continuation. We're going to continue to work our way carefully through Matthew, especially in this chapter that is nearly a gospel within a gospel. Some of the more elite Bible scholars of the past make chapter 16 of Matthew among their most extensive studies. Uh, so rich it is in, in, in critical information. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, everybody. And we're going to look at verse 19. Now we're going to read more in Matthew 16 in a few minutes, but for now I want to focus your attention on only this one verse. This is going to be a bit long-winded, but I think if you focus on what I'm about to tell you, it will answer a number of difficult questions you, you might have wondered about. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look at verse uh, 19. There it says this, and this is Yeshua talking to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Boy, there's a lot going on there. We spent the bulk of our time last week on the first part of this verse that explained what it means for Peter to hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to review it, but you can go back to that lesson if it helps you. Yet I didn't really get into those mysterious words that come later in this same verse, which speak of an authority given to Peter to bind and to loose, to prohibit and to permit, to bind and loose on earth and in heaven, and perhaps this authority is meant to extend to Christ's other 11 disciples as well, as we'll see when we get to chapter 18. <clears throat> now, the mysterious nature of binding and loosing is in some ways a mirage. Just as with trying to understand the meaning of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, there's many different views about the meaning of binding and loosing. Yet the words binding and loosing were not at all strange within the context of the Jewish religious community of the first century. Dr. Lightfoot points out that <clears throat> this phrase was rather fundamental within Jewish religious academies that were producing the next generation of Jewish religious leadership for the synagogues. Perhaps the most important aspect for extracting the meaning is that binding and loosing was applied only to things, not to people. 
That is, a religious authority, a rabbi, did not bind and loose <clears throat> another person. Instead, it was a statement explaining that this religious leader had the official standing to declare things <clears throat> clean or unclean, lawful or unlawful, sin or not sin, so on. So that when a case was brought before him, he would be asked to decide if a certain Jewish law applied or not. Or a rabbi might create a new Jewish law that permitted something or prohibited it. Perhaps the best way to help you understand the sense of binding and loosing within Judaism, and this is the context in which it was meant here in, in Matthew, is to give some examples of it that's recorded in ancient Jewish writings. Rabbi Yochanan said to those of Tiberius, Why have ye brought this elder to me? Whatever I loose, he binds. Whatever I bind, he looses. So the idea here is that the rabbi is unhappy with this particular Jewish elder because whatever rule or verdict that the good rabbi makes about prohibiting or permitting something, binding or loosing, this Jewish elder turns around and says the opposite. Rabbi Chaya said, Whatever, whatsoever I have bound to you elsewhere, I will loose to you here. So the rabbi says that even though in other places or situations or times he has made a ruling of Jewish law to prohibit something, to bind it, in this particular place or situation or time, he rules that it will be allowed. It will be loosed. Getting a more specific example, we have this recorded rabbinic ruling about carrying vessels or pots on Shabbat concerning the moving of empty vessels on the Sabbath day, of the filling of which there is no intention. The school of Shammai binds it. The school of Hillel looses it. So as concerns a Jew simply moving a cooking pot or a pot used for some kind of work, it seems that the teachings and the rulings taught in the religious academy of Shammai prohibits, it binds, moving such a vessel on the Sabbath, even so far as there's no intention of using that pot to cook or even to carry anything in it. However, the religious academy of Hillel has ruled that it is permissible. They loose it. So these sorts of religious rulings were a customary part of daily life among the Jewish synagogue leadership during Yeshua's day. And the common folk, such as Yeshua's disciples, well, they would have heard it and been subject to it numerous times. They also had to deal with the reality that one ruling authority might contradict another. 
Now, for our purposes, we need to begin by understanding that to bind and to loose was a Jewish religious expression that was used within the realm of Jewish religious leadership. It was not something that the common folk would have said to one another in a conversation or that a father might have said to a son or a daughter. So when Jesus employs it here, it's because he is assuming the role of a Jewish religious leader, of someone who has authority, and he's issuing a lofty-sounding ruling, synagogue style, that could rightly be called halakha, Jewish law. And that is exactly how Peter would have recognized it. Now let's take this a step further. In the Jewish context of the day, a synagogue leader, a scribe, well, he could bestow limited authority to another person who sits lower in the religious hierarchy of the synagogue, say to an elder, for example, to be able to bind and to loose, that is, to make rulings about Jewish law, but within a certain scope, not as large a scope as that of the rabbi or the scribe. And in fact, I quoted to you just such a situation whereby a rabbi was upset that rulings that he made were being overturned by a mere elder who, in the rabbi's view, was overstepping his limited authority. However, and this is the biggie, the elder, the one of lower authority who has only limited scope, could not create new rules. He could not create new halakha. All he could do is hear cases, make legal rulings according to the existing Jewish laws, existing halakha. It's not unlike what a judge in the Western justice system is to do. That is, a judge is not to make new law, but rather to enforce the laws that exist. And since the case is brought before him or her, are often anything but straightforward, then the judge has to ponder exactly how or if a certain law applies. Now, what I'm telling you <clears throat> may sound rather complicated or full of trivial nuances. In fact, it was understood. It was a given within first century Jewish society. So the average Jew reading what Matthew says that Christ told Peter about giving him the authority to bind and loose intrinsically understood that in no way was Peter being given the same wide scope of authority that his master held. I will say again, it indeed was authority, but it was limited. So the next question is, exactly what was the extent of the authority that Yeshua gave to Peter. Now the words used here are that whatever the extent it applied to the realms of earth 
and heaven. So the authority to bind and to loose, to prohibit and to permit, to make rulings pertaining to things, not to people, of that happening on earth, well, we kind of understand that. But in heaven? Does that bother you just a little bit? If it doesn't, you're not paying attention. See, the Greek word that's being translated into heaven in English is uranos. Uranos. Just like the Hebrew shamaim that Matthew would have first written before it got translated into Greek, it's a word that can indicate either the sky where the birds fly and the clouds float, or it can mean the spiritual place located above the sky, the place where God and the angels live. See, the context must tell us which meaning to attach. So the decision we have to make is if Yeshua just gave Peter the authority to make rulings about things in heaven where God lives. Now such a thing is for me unimaginable. I mean, I see it not only as illogical, if not irrational, it also violates every biblical principle we've learned up to now. I mean, I would argue that Jesus may not even hold enough authority over heaven such that He on His own could award some measure of that authority to a mere, very flawed human being like Peter. So let me be unequivocal. Yeshua was extending Peter's authority to include rulings about things that happen in the sky, not in God's home, in the spiritual heaven. Therefore, it's not that Peter got authority in heaven, but rather in the heavens, plural, meaning the sky. Great. What does that mean? What authority could Peter hold over the sky? Well, let's explore this a little more. Because it bears such importance regarding church doctrines and church leadership authority. For example, the Catholic Church sees Peter as having been given authority in literal heaven. And therefore, since they deem Peter is the first pope, so does every pope to follow him have the authority to renounce portions of God's word or to change it as he believes it should be. And there are other Christian church beliefs that extend Paul's authority beyond the earth and the sky and on into heaven, such as even having authority over the angels. But not quite to as great an extent as the Pope's. Now from the far view, when Jesus is actually, what Jesus is actually giving to Peter and then later on to the other disciples, is the authority to teach, to instruct, and thus to make rulings on various situations that are going to come up within the body of believers. No doubt this begins with properly interpreting Scripture. 
Now, as for how this might include the sky, this very likely refers to what Christ had just said a few verses earlier as he stood on the lake shore of Magadan and he jousted with some Pharisees and Sadducees, and it regarded reading signs in the in heaven, in the heavens. Remember? Red sky in the morning versus red sky at night. So Peter and his Peter and the disciples were given authority by Christ to, through proper scriptural interpretation based upon Yeshua's teachings, answer questions about certain signs in this what certain signs in the sky might mean, along with what certain things that happened on earth, signs on earth, might mean. I mean, after all, think about this for a minute. Sooner than the disciples can even imagine, Yeshua's going to be taken from them. And all that will be left of the leadership of the entire Jesus movement is going to be those 12 disciples. You talk about a responsibility. So this authority to instruct to lead and to rule on what we could loosely call religious legal matters among his followers, this that Yeshua is bestowing to Peter and to his disciples was in preparation for what was inevitably coming. Now, since we will encounter Peter further in, in Matthew's gospel, I, I want to take a little time to discuss him. See, there's, as always concerned, such a biblically prominent but distant personality, wide opinions about him. And in this case, the bigger question is about his position, or you could say rank, among the other 11 disciples. See, the stance on his rank and what it means for Christ followers, and especially for church leadership, has resulted in a wide range of church doctrines and rules. For one strand of church doctrine, Peter is the newly announced replacement master that takes over after Christ's death. He is the chief over all the other disciples and thus the supreme head over the entire emergent congregation of Jesus. The other end of the scale of opinion sees Peter not as special and set apart, but rather as representative of every believer. In between these two extremes, there are several other views, but probably the middle ground is that Peter was indeed special among the disciples. He was not the chief authority over the disciples, but rather one that the others informally looked to, and often, more often than not, for guidance and answers regarding the movement. See, there is no mention of Peter holding any office or position of, of official authority because the Jesus movement simply wasn't that thoroughly organized yet. Even so, I don't see 
How any plain reading of Matthew's and Mark's gospel accounts reveals anything other than than Peter most certainly being preeminent above the other disciples, and this was at Yeshua's discretion. See, the statement by Christ in Matthew 16, 18, and then the special authority Yeshua seems to, at least at first, have bestowed upon Peter concerning the kingdom of heaven, and then proclaiming that Peter was the rock out of which the congregation of Yeshua followers would be cut, that by itself sets Peter apart from the others. Now, but not for the typical Christian reasoning, see, but rather because such a statement is meant for the Jews of that era to recall that Abraham was also called a rock out of which the Hebrew nation would emerge, with rock being an expression that wasn't meant to be overly examined and scrutinized in its every possible nuance. It was just a a well-understood metaphor. And just as Abraham did not hold an official office in some newly created religious organizational structure, neither, it seems, did Peter. Rather, purely through force of character, God's will, and an acceptance by others of these men's high positions before God, Abraham and Peter were revered and considered as the top leaders. Similarly, we also know that James, Jesus' biological brother, was head of the believing congregation in Jerusalem. Apparently, was accepted as such in a similar way as Peter. Even Paul held a widely accepted high status, even though it too was not official. Now, I can't get into all the details today, but there is strong evidence that there was no universal agreement among the believers in the early Jesus movement about Peter's proper status. But perhaps what's more telling, more important for us 2,000 years later, is that whatever his status might have been, Peter was regularly the center of discussion, and he was widely known and respected. We don't read much about the other disciples other than for John after Yeshua's death, but Peter was always a hot topic. Now, this should be easily understandable for us because it would be the normal human reaction to question a movement's leadership and even for rival leadership factions to form, which they did, especially prior to a movement becoming a formal organization with a clear management structure and a defined hierarchy of authority. Now I'm going to go forward in my Matthew lessons under the assumption that Peter is special, that Yeshua saw him as special, and so he gave Peter a special, although unofficial, position and status at the top of the Jesus movement as it existed as of that moment. Now, we don't have any further details to make any greater assumptions or draw any more definitive conclusions than these. Okay, let's read a little bit more of Matthew. We're going to start at verse uh, 21. 
go on to the end. Matthew 16, starting at verse 21. <clears throat> From that time on, Yeshua began making it clear to his Talmudim, his disciples, he had to go to Jerusalem and endure much suffering at the hands of the elders, the head Kohanim, the head priests, high priest, and the Torah teachers, and that he had to be put to death, but that on the third day he had to be raised to life. Kepha Peter took him aside and began rebuking him. Heaven be merciful, Lord, by no means will this happen to you. But Yeshua turned his back on Kepha, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle in my path because your thinking is from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. Then Yeshua told his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let him say no to himself, take up his execution stake, and keep following me. For whoever wants to save his own life will destroy it. But whoever destroys his life for my sake will find it. What good will it do someone if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. Yes, I tell you, there are some people standing here who will not experience death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So after warning His disciples, they weren't to tell anyone that He was the Messiah, in verse 21, Yeshua began to explain to them some of the details of the things that were going to soon happen to Him. He says He will have to go to Jerusalem, and there He's going to suffer greatly at the hands of the elders, the high priest, and the scribes. Those three official titles and offices he has put forth essentially define the broad scope of Jewish religious leadership that includes the full involvement of both the temple authorities and the synagogue authorities. We have to be careful now not to lump all temple authorities, all synagogue leaders together as wicked. No doubt there were those individuals that wanted nothing to do with the horrible and unjust persecutions that their peers and their higher-ups would inflict upon this carpenter from Nazareth. Now the really hard part for His disciples to hear must have been Yeshua's shocking prediction of His own death. But then there is also the even stickier matter of him saying he'd be raised back to life on the third day. And I think this news had to be nearly unfathomable for his disciples from both an intellectual and an emotional standpoint. Mark 8.31 adds that as Christ explained to them what horrors were going to occur, he did it plainly and openly. That is, openly in the sense of not softening the gory details are holding back any important information. So Matthew's summation of what Jesus revealed to the disciples is highly abbreviated. Luke and Mark also include Messiah's words about suffering and dying. John addresses it too, although the reference is more implication and hint than the straightforward statements of the three synoptic gospel writers. 
In each of these four references to His death, the promise of resurrection is also included. Now, no doubt the way Christ presented it and the way it was recorded and then handed down, it was meant to echo the suffering servant passages of Isaiah 52 and 53. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to read it all. Who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance didn't attract us. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains, well acquainted with illness, like someone from whom people turn their faces. He was despised. We didn't value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore. It was our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes. He was crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him. And by his bruises we are healed. We all, like sheep, went astray. We turned, each one, to our own way. Yet Adonai laid on Him the guilt of us all. Though mistreated, He was submissive. He didn't open His mouth. Like a lamb led to, the, to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before His shears, He didn't open His mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away. None of his generation protested from him, his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people, who deserved the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with a rich man. And although he had done no violence, he had said nothing deceptive, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. And if he does, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And at his hand, Adonai's desire will be accomplished. And after this ordeal, he will see satisfaction. And by knowing, by his knowing pain and sacrifice, my righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore, I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty. For having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners, while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. That's some pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? But you have to understand this was written at least 700 years before Christ was born. 
Now, this chapter probably sounds familiar to many of you. The predictions of what will happen to the suffering servant and what actually happened to Yeshua are so similar as to be undeniable. At least it's undeniable for those of you whom God has blessed with the faith to believe. So you are open and you are teachable. And yet, even if these verses from Isaiah about the suffering servants, torture and death had been in some way recalled by Yeshua's disciples, there is little here that would imply Him being raised from the dead. But even more, should one find an implication of resurrection, what kind of resurrection might this foretell? See, in the first century, there were numerous viewpoints and doctrines about resurrection, ranging from it not existing at all, that was the um, uh, Sadducees' viewpoint, to full bodily resurrection. But there was also what we might call a partial or a lesser resurrection that would mean the living on of the human spirit, but in some undefined form. And this kind of resurrection did, in some Jewish circles, actually lean towards a kind of reincarnation, although it didn't involve the Eastern mystical concept of karma, whereby whether one remains as another human, or rather returns as another human, or, or as some kind of an animal, it depends on how one lives their life. See, this strand of belief about resurrection has been well in evidence in the last couple of chapters of Matthew, as he records that some Jews thought, who did they think Yeshua was? Some, a revivified John the Baptist. We've heard that several times. In other Jewish circles, resurrection, resurrection looks something like one soul going to a kind of a heaven-like place upon death, that is going from being alive on earth to being alive in a set-apart space, maybe in heaven. The concept of Abraham's bosom as a pleasant resting place of safety under the earth for the souls of the righteous dead was still in the mix as well. And Christ seems actually to have verified this because we're told He descended before He ascended. We even have the recent miracle of Yeshua revivifying a young girl after she died but before she was buried and bringing her fully back to life as though her death had never happened. Something these disciples, by the way, were well aware of. So the matter of what could happen after death, whether some type of afterlife was possible or not, or what resurrection might have amounted to, well, that was in no way a settled doctrine or tradition at that time. Which means, follow me, that neither was it settled in the minds of Jesus' disciples. After all, these men had not suddenly become biblical scholars or spiritual giants. 
So whatever it was that they each mentally pictured about what Jesus meant by being raised from the dead on the third day, likely this bore no similarity to what actually would happen as we now know it. Now this conclusion is reinforced. Because in verse 22, Peter is said to have taken Jesus aside and he tells Yeshua that all this that Yeshua has said about his torture and death that is supposedly going to happen, he said, well, that's inconceivable. It can't possibly be so. Now, I think Peter had good reason to feel and react this way. I mean, only moments before, Yeshua had told Peter that the gates of Sheol would not prevail against it. It. It is something that could be taken as meaning Peter's position was going to be protected, or that the movement Christ started was going to be protected from dying out. See, the confusion about this verse is because Christian commentators regularly equate Sheol with hell or Hades. But that is just factually incorrect. For Jews, Sheol was the grave. It was literally a hole in the ground where a corpse was placed after death and then the body decomposes. It doesn't generally include any type of an afterlife. The grave did include afterlife to a degree in earlier times, but far less so by the first century. See, I don't know if you call, but early in the Old Testament writings, we regularly hear about so-and-so died and went to be with his ancestors. However, hell and Hades, well, those are both evil netherworlds, underground places of a not-so-pleasant afterlife for souls. So when Yeshua told Peter that the gates of Sheol would not prevail, I think it meant that the movement would not die, metaphorically, metaphorically, it wouldn't go into a grave. Therefore, since Yeshua was the head and the founder of that movement, living and standing there before him, Peter had to assume Yeshua wasn't going to die anytime soon. And yet, just a few words later, it seems, that Yeshua has reversed course and schizophrenically said he is going to the grave to Sheol not very long from now. I mean, it's all had to be terribly confusing and alarming to these disciples. Now, we are also intended to notice that it's not just that Yeshua says these terrible things are going to happen to him, but they must happen. They must happen. It indicates that he is accepting this as his destiny. Must happen means that these things are a necessary prerequisite for something more. But why must they happen? Clearly, Peter and the others had in no way understood that the Torah and the prophets lead us to the conclusion that the only way to, to a truly redeemed life is through death, Messiah's death. 
Yeshua responds to Peter with one of the most famous lines in the Bible, a line that continues to be used to this day even in the secular world. Get behind me, Satan! That, my friends, is a pretty weird thing for Jesus to blurt out. And it's a questionable interpretation that seems to me to lie outside the context of what's been occurring. Now, while the majority of Bible scholars assume that Yeshua is literally referring to Satan, many others do not, and I tend to agree with the minority. Satan in Hebrew is actually less a name or a title that is a simple noun that means adversary. The Greek word that we find here is satanus, obviously taken from the Hebrew. And it operates the same way. That is, it can be translated as adversary or opponent. Anyone, any adversary, any opponent. Or it can at times be used as a proper name referring to a specific being, Satan. Now, a simple noun is how I lean towards translating this, unless perhaps Jesus is mouthing an otherwise unknown Jewish expression telling someone that they are speaking evil. Otherwise, just moments after declaring Peter the rock on which the Jesus movement shall be built, we have Christ calling Peter the devil, or at least saying that Peter is being co-opted and used by the devil, which certainly is not out of the realm of possibility. Rather, it seems to me that Yeshua is rebuking Peter by saying that Peter is essentially speaking in opposition to him, even if it was meant innocently. Yeshua then goes on to say so that, that, that Peter is behaving as an adversary, and this is because Peter processes Yeshua's words of his suffering and death through the lens of human thought and of his adherence to the traditions of the elders, as opposed to the way God sees it and wills it. If Yeshua meant that Peter was representing Satan, then it seems to me he would have said that Peter's thinking was coming from Satan's view, not the human view. Nevertheless, it is challenging to put into words the thoughts that must have been racing through Peter's mind as this surreal scene unfolded. Now, let me see if I can paint a picture of what it likely was to help us understand why Peter impulsively said what he said in response to Yeshua's very unwelcome message. To begin with, recall. The Father has just revealed to him, just right then, that Jesus was God's Son and Israel's Messiah, and Jesus confirmed it. I mean, this was moments before this. But what kind of a Messiah is going to be revealed and immediately say he's going to be arrested and put to death? And this would accomplish exactly what? According to Jewish traditions, the Messiah was very nearly Jewish Superman. 
an unstoppable, charismatic conqueror that brushes aside the opposition. Opposition. He's King David on steroids. This was to be the one man that could finally throw off the oppression of Rome and reestablish an independent Jewish state. He would be the first Israelite king of Israel in hundreds of years. A wise leader, a brilliant and courageous military man that would usher Israel into a new golden era. Therefore, what Yeshua said made no sense to Peter. Jesus couldn't possibly be that Messiah and at some time be at the same time be predestined for a premature death at the hands of the enemy. Therefore, Yeshua could not have been the fulfillment of what every Jew knew Messiah was to be and to do if he was only going to appear and then soon suffer and die. Can you understand this? I mean, such a thing for a Jew would be anything but victory. It would be a soul-crushing catastrophe. And yet, wow. And yet Peter was so sold out to Yeshua, had so much faith in him, that he didn't do what others might have done, throw his hands in the air in despair and walk away from yet another in a series of self-proclaimed wannabe messiahs that never pan out. Perhaps this is actually the thing that ought to impress us most about Peter. Provide a great example for us to strive towards. Even though Peter's mind had been conditioned to everything he had been taught within the Jewish religious system, making it seem as though Jesus was not living up to the expectations of a Messiah, Peter still loved Yeshua and trusted in Him so deeply, without reservation, that he was willing to continue to follow Him despite it not making any sense to his mind. Folks, this is how we must trust and follow our Savior as we rapidly approach what inevitably comes next in redemption history, Christ's return, the revealing of the Antichrist, incredible persecution of believers, Israel being isolated and decimated, and then the end. We do have somewhat of a biblical roadmap for how this is going to unfold, but it's vague and it's incomplete. Peter and his fellow Jews also had a biblical roadmap available to them in the Torah and the prophets about the advent of a Messiah and what he would do and what would happen to him, but it too was vague and it was incomplete. The Israelites were meant to trust God, to wait patiently, to let history play out with enough information to, perhaps in hindsight, recognize what God was doing 
so as to have confidence that God was in control, that His will was being carried out. But the Jews of Christ's era were victims of centuries of incorrect traditions taught by their elders and teachers just as Christians are victims of centuries of incorrect traditions taught by our elders and teachers. Now there are several end times traditions, which certainly don't all agree, and each insistent that they tell us the true and accurate details of how the end is going to unfold. Some insist that if you don't believe their particular tradition, well, you just can't be a believer. I know darn well some of you have had this foisted on you. I have. Entire systems of exactly how the end times plays out have been concocted that have names like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. There are rigid doctrines about what the rapture looks like and amounts to, the exact point in time at which Yeshua returns, who returns with Him, details of what the millennial kingdom is going to look like, so much more that are popularized, and each denomination has adopted one or another of these and brooks no dissent among the ranks. So the problem for a Christian today is similar as it was for the Jews in the era Matthew is writing about. Their traditions were so dominant that when the prophesied events began to happen, they were oblivious to it or dismissed it as irrelevant because the focal point of these biblical prophecies didn't fit their traditions. This is what Peter and the disciples are struggling with. It is why Peter was aghast and confused about Yeshua's prediction of His coming demise. There is a similar danger within the church and within Judaism that the foretold signs of the world having entered the end times and prophesied signs of the imminent return of Messiah are going to be missed by God's people because incorrect doctrines and traditions of men insist on something else entirely. Let those with ears hear. Beginning in verse 24, there's a subtle shifting of gears. Yeshua says, Then Yeshua told His Talmudim, His disciples, If anyone wants to come after Me, let him say no to himself, take up his execution stake, and keep following Me. For whoever wants to save his own life will destroy it. Whoever destroys his life for My sake will find it. <clears throat> the subject we've shifted into is the high cost. The high cost cost of discipleship. That startle you even a little bit? I'm unsure of the last time I heard of a Christian speaker talk on the high and the ongoing cost each believer must pay to be a true and accepted member of the Kingdom of Heaven. Instead, it's a rather, rather widespread 
church doctrine that Christ paid the high cost so that we, his followers, don't have to. He suffered so that we can just live a, our lives of ease on our own terms. Now, I've personally heard a number of times while in Israel of Jews saying to Christians that we embrace a cheap faith. And while that sentiment comes mainly from an underlying animosity, that's not necessarily incorrect. At least not as far as man-made Christian doctrines are constructed concerning the cost of discipleship and who pays it. But the New Testament tells a little bit different story. See, the subject of the cost of discipleship, that is, of following Yeshua, as presented here in the Gospel of Matthew, is not new. In fact, it may, in a certain sense, have reached a high point a few chapters ago during the Sermon on the Mount. As Yeshua says things like this in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, You have heard that our fathers were told, do not murder, and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment. And also in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27, You have heard that our fathers were told, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that a man who even looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now he said, of course, many more things, but I think this is sufficient to make my point. Which is harder? Not to murder somebody? Or to not hold anger against somebody? Even if it might seem to be justified and we never outwardly display it. Men, which is harder? Not to cheat on your wife? Or to not to secretly look at another woman from a mindset of lust, even if you never act on that lust, which is harder. But before Yeshua speaks to the crowd by encouraging a higher standard, but by which they are to obey the laws of Moses, this is the right standard that God always intended, but still is a standard greater than the ones their ancestors were told by their leaders that they were to follow. Yeshua sets down then this dilly of a principle. Matthew 18 through 20, Indeed I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a yud or a stroke's going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened, so whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, well, they're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because I tell you, until your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you're certainly not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You starting to get a feeling of what the righteousness was like with these Torah teachers and Pharisees now, what they relied upon, So says Jesus, membership in the kingdom of heaven requires scrupulous obedience to the Torah, the law of Moses, not only in the letter, but most importantly, in spirit. And now to an even higher standard, 
if one wants to be Yeshua's disciple. He says, in fact, that the traditional standard bearers of righteousness among the Jewish people, the Torah teachers, the Pharisees, they had not attained the high level of righteousness that Jesus said is needed to even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be placed in its social hierarchy that is based on Christ's standard of observance of the law. See, now this teaching is but one aspect of Yeshua's requirements for people to be His disciples. Does this sound easy? Does this sound like our only obligation is to say the sinner's prayer and then sit back and relax until the Lord calls us to heaven? Doesn't sound much like that, does it? Well, it does get much easier if Christ's teachings on the high cost of discipleship are ignored and then replaced with man-made doctrines. It's a lot easier. And it's all the more easy if somebody rips the heart out of the issue of obedience to God, which is the Law of Moses, and then throws it into a doctrinal trash heap. Pretty strong words, I know. Not any stronger than Jesus' words, though. We'll finish up chapter 16 next time.